This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Monday, January 29th of 2018, it's episode 125. In this episode, positive metagaming, plus roller coasters and their ilk, a gaming recap, a flock of seagulls, randomized Zelda, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I'm Jenny. How's everybody? Uh, doing pretty good. Pretty decent. Excellent. That's good. I'm finally feeling a little better, which is nice. Nothing major, just had a migraine that interrupted recording last time, so we that was fun. Yeah. It's been oddly stressful around here. I'm not sure why. Mm. Winter, getting cooped up and stuff. Yeah, but I got to take my daughter to the girliest birthday party ever, so that was hilarious. <laughs> you told us about this during game. It was unicorn everything. Oh, unicorn my Unicorn dress for the birthday girl, unicorn balloons, unicorn gift paper, unicorn cake, unicorn party favors, unicorn other party favors. Instead of birthday hats, they had unicorn horns. Wow. It was fairly amazing, but it was actually a lovely party ton of kids and there was a bouncy house with not so much a slide as a bouncy cliff <laughs> everybody go nuts so they all had glorious. a <laughs> yeah like it seriously goes 90 degrees at one point and kids were oh just like goodness. hitting the top bouncing and falling hitting the bottom and it was just like yep that's fine they're five and six they'll recover it's wow. hilarious it, she had a lot of fun so you know stuff like that anyway we don't have a whole lot of news and notes. Thank you for people who have sent Patreon questions in. If you have not sent a Patreon question in for a while and you're a Patreon supporter, please do so. We really do need those. We need uh, the questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, also that. Um, uh, we've done a lot of gaming, though, which has been pretty good. Uh, mm. I do want to, I mean, I don't want to get into like gaming story territory here, although Peter will probably do it anyway. Yep. But we've had some good games. Uh, Fellowship. Man, I feel bad for our fellowship GM because we have split the party yet again. <laughs> oh, no. To be fair, you have a fairly large party, don't you? Uh, seven players and the GM. Yeah. So you essentially have two parties. We really do. And he is being smart this time. And rather than trying to run two groups on alternating weeks, thereby doubling his workload, because this is a once every other week game until he said, oh, well, we'll just, you know, double up and I'll, it'll be easier because it's smaller groups. No, uh, it's not. It no. never is. That's a lie. You were wrong. <laughs> you know, once he realized, no, that was a, a terrible way to approach it. And it went three times longer than it should have anyway, because it's this group. This is the same group that did our mage game. Oh, it's going to be a six session intro mage game as we prepare our vampire years game. later three, three years later the campaign wrapped up yeah wow on the other hand though you guys have a tendency of just not realizing how awesome you are and then finding out and play and rolling with it it sounds like so it's, it's been good fellowship's been a lot of fun i'm really enjoying it and learning a lot and chrissy's doing a really good job with it too like her character is really cool and is kind of becoming the centerpiece of the campaign which is great she certainly did some awesome stuff in our D D game but we'll yeah. get to that when we get to it but we did kind of move things along and now what we are doing he's cutting back and forth between groups which is kind of cool. Like, I, I like that way of doing things. You kind of still get to see what the other side of the, the table is doing and snark at them. It's very so. novelistic, too. Oh, you yeah, that very kind cinematic, of I would cutting, say. That or that. Yeah, I mean, either mm -hmm. one, you'll get like the cutting between different yeah. groups of people and stuff. And yeah, that's that's a very effective storytelling technique. It kind of leaves everybody on cliffhangers for a little while. And yeah, 
It'll be fun. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we had our D&D game, and I'm going to leave that to Peter to talk about. But we had one very successful session and one decent session. Yeah, I mean, last session, I think we needed to blow off some of the emotional steam from the previous one. So we kind of goofed around and had fun and stuff. But oh, boy, that previous session. Yeah, that was good. Uh, yeah. OK, so this was the session right after the Horvu thing. And um, I'm going to apologize, question mark, for the length of the blog post explaining <sighs> what happened here. I'll link it in the show notes. Yeah. It should be up by the time. Actually, it's going up tomorrow as we're recording this, so it will definitely be up by the time this episode drops, unless time travel is involved, in which case, (laughs) hey, you know. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, so you may have remembered a while ago when we were talking about battered group syndrome that my player character had picked up a cursed sword, a uh, sword of vengeance, as it's called in D&D. And Grant and I kind of swatted that around a little bit after it happened. And my cleric character, who is a very kind and patient person most of the time, but has a tendency to snap a little bit if things are just a little bit too horrendous in the world around him. Well, that's kind of just the hooks that something like that needed to really start messing with him and his behavior. So he's been getting um, progressively more vengeful and angry over the last several sessions. Hi, cat. Hello, podcat. <laughs> Hello, Sterling. Uh, yes, sorry very that. vengeful. Very yeah. vengeful. And he's been taking a lot more kind of like this gleeful tack on fights or potential fights or that sort of thing. And because this is very unlike him, the other player characters started to notice. Well, that all came to a head against a uh, mob of horrible seagull people that tried to murder us and very nearly succeeded. You know how Kinku are intelligent and interesting? Yeah, because they're based on Corvids. And (laughs) seagulls are horrible, murderous scavengers. Yeah. (laughs) It's Mm. a lot like that. Yeah. Mm. Lots of screaming, running, and tearing at flesh. Yeah. (laughs) Spears and axes. It was pretty awful. I'm not going to go too long with this um, because- Because you already did. Yeah. I want everybody (laughs) to read the blog blog post. post. And second of all, because my cat is meowing his head off and I'm going to give Grant too much extra editing work. So, Jenny, how about you? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I've been in two campaigns. One I've mentioned, I think, on the podcast. If if it wasn't on the podcast, it was... Weekend reading, maybe? I, th- I think it may have been a weekend reading. I like. I'm generally not sure if I've mentioned this or not. But basically, Monday nights are game nights at my house. There is actually currently the game I'm about to talk about being played upstairs as as I speak. And uh, so my mom is running this game and it's in Beyond the Wall, which is a D&D like system, but it's it's really light. It can be like zero prep if the GM wants it to be. I think character creation, if we really had been focused on character creation, like 15 minutes, it's, it's a very light D&D ish system. So mom is it made- considered to be part of the OSR or is it? What's not OSR? really part of it. Old school revival movement? Is it part of that or is it I don't not quite think that? so. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know anything about old school revival. You had to tell me what the acronym meant, so eh, I don't know. It's fine. <laughs> Mum is basically running a prequel to an old D&D module called Keep on the Borderlands. She calls this one Creep on the Borderlands, and it's a moida mystery. Um, mm. So basically, livestock has been getting killed in weird ways around the town. 
And um, the guy who's sort of in charge of the spiritual side of the role of the keep, as the keep is being built right now, he's basically like, hey, something really weird's going on. Before I retired, I was a paladin. I think I've got one more good fight left in me. Let's go figure out what's killing all this livestock in such weird ways. So the day that we're supposed to leave to go on this trip, he is murdered. The old guy is murdered in mysterious circumstances and... Upon basically breaking into the crypt, we find that he has been turned to stone with a somewhat shocked look on his face. So now we have to basically find the basilisk or cockatrice or gorgon or whatever it is that turned him to stone um, huh. under mysterious circumstances. And it's been a lot of fun. I'm playing um, a dwarf fighter, which is a little bit outside of what I usually play. I usually tend towards rogues or wizards. But now I'm playing a dwarf fighter, so let's see. We'll we'll see how that goes. So that's the one game I'm in, and I'm in another game that's monthly. So it, we've only had two sessions so far, but it's in New World of Darkness, and basically we have been tasked by the United Nations in 1947, I think it was. It's either 47 or 49, to basically f- find these Nazis that went up to Greenland. And basically tell them that the war is over because they probably don't know. And then this one also turned out turned out to be a bit of a, a moida mystery because uh, we get there and we find out that the Nazis have been killed in terrible, terrible ways. And last we left our our heroes, there was a polar bear. So that was the cliffhanger we got left on. Basically, <laughs> a polar bear is in our way. So those have been my gaming experiences recently. That's not a non-hazardous piece of wildlife either. No. What is it with white, dangerous, bloody-mouthed wildlife in our games? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one one thing that I don't think I gave you credit for in the um, the blog post that I'm going to go ahead and fix now is Grant came up. We use we use roll twenty for our D and D game, and Grant, with the help of his daughter, apparently found the two most horrifying, like, open-beaked, psychotic-looking seagull images that probably are on the internet right now (laughs) and used those as the tokens. Oh, my god! Yeah, I found a wonderful little online tool called Token Stamp. You can just Google for it. uh, I'm not even going to bother linking it, but it's a handy little thing. You just upload an image, and it's got some basic frames and some shading and that sort of thing that you can do to make little Roll20 tokens. It doesn't care if it's a D&D monster or not. I was just Googling, like, Bloody seagull. Angry seagull. <laughs> Murderous seagull. <laughs> and Horrible seagull. Vile just seagull. Google image searches like, seagull. I don't know what you want, but I'm going to try. Here, let's, let's give this a shot. <laughs> it's like one of those if Google was a guy skits and it just looks at you funny. <laughs> yeah, and of course, my daughter comes in right as I'm like, is this seagull too bloody? I mean, it is coated head to foot. Will it be recognized as a seagull? Daddy, what's that? Just looking at birds. <laughs> looking at birds. Do you want to help me make these birds into monsters? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> that's my family life. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, that, that was fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. Fun game. And then the next session, like like you said, it kind of just dragged a little. We'd also started late for reasons. We had a lot of emotion to get out. And then, frankly, we were just making fun of it. And it was it was fine. But yeah, it was just a lot of friendship and nonsense last time. Basically. <laughs> that's OK. 
I did have one other thing I want to talk about real quick before we move on to our main topic, which, by the way, just so we all know what we're talking about this particular episode, we are talking about positive metagaming, which is something we've mentioned before, but we kind of wanted to get into more specifically this episode. Yeah, and we've got some good recent concrete examples we can draw on, too, so it seemed timely. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I wanted to talk about game hacking for a moment first. All right. This is something I've I've recently started watching because I saw it at Awesome Games Done Quick 2018, and it's absolutely fascinating. And I think something that people who don't hack video games, but instead hack role-playing games or are interested in asking themselves, what can I do with an existing role-playing game should be somewhat interested in. So first of all, for those who don't know, Awesome Games Done Quick is one of two marathons done by Games Done Quick, which is kind of a, a group of people from the larger speedrunning community. Speedrunning is a thing you do with a video game where you try and complete it as fast as possible. And that sounds kind of generic, like, well, yeah, okay, you're just kind of running straight to the end. But we're talking as fast as humanly possible mm-hmm. and sometimes even faster. Yeah. yeah. As in Leverage they, they take every glitch and yeah. yeah well, like- d- depending on the category. And this is the cool thing. Often it's, okay, we've got glitchless and, you know, any percent and hundred percent, depending on the game. Like there's all these different ways to do it, which is pretty cool in and of itself, right? Mm-hmm. Here is a game. And let's find new ways to enjoy ourselves in it and to master certain things. And, you know, we're competing. But as soon as somebody discovers something because of the nature of this, you know, you have to record a video and say, this is what I did. You can't just like keep your techniques a secret. You show people what you did. Right. So instead of I'm going to keep things to myself, it's as soon as you find something, it's like, guys, I found this cool thing. Let me show you how to do it. Yeah. So it's a very open community, which is really cool. One of the things they showed at Awesome Games Done Quick 2018, which, by the way, raises money for the Prevent Cancer Foundation, and then Summer Games Done Quick does Doctors Without Borders. They raised $2.2 million for the Prevent Cancer Foundation in a week. Good on them. Mm-hmm. One of the things they did was a speed run of A Link to the Past, but differently. They've done Link to the Past before at marathons. This is a Super Nintendo Zelda game. One of my favorites. I'm, I'm, I still remember where all the heart pieces are in that game. Just like if I sat down and played it, I'd be like, yeah, I can get like 22 of 24 of them off the top of my head. This oh, is wow. fine. Can't beat Moldorm. Mm-hmm. I can definitely tell you how to get to all those heart pieces. That's fine. But what they did instead, this was a race. They were kind of showing two different people racing against each other. But it's using a hacked version of the game. And the hack is a randomizer hack that randomizes where all of the items are in the game. Oh, boy. Oh, interesting. So what's cool about that is it's done algorithmically because it basically it's anything that would give you an item, right? So it's not like you'd kill a, a random enemy and instead of dropping a rupee, it drops Titan mitts. Doesn't work like that. It's anywhere there are set items that you can get. So, for example, a chest or you complete a quest for a NPC beating a boss. Uh, You always get a a reward from beating the boss, usually a heart container. Well, heart containers are one of the things that are randomized and mixed up. So instead, you might get the hammer. Huh. Okay. But it's done in such a way that it makes sure that the items you that Zelda is essentially a series of locks and keys. Sometimes it's literal keys that you collect in a dungeon to get through a locked door, but sometimes it's, I need the hammer to knock down these pegs so I can progress. I need a bomb to get through this wall. They're all just different locks and different keys that open those locks. That's essentially all a Zelda game is. It's how a lot of adventure games work. Right. Metroidvania games work the same way. I got a power up. Now I can reach new areas. Those areas I am locked out of because I didn't have this power up. Well, the way this randomizer system works, it makes it so that items that unlock new areas are accessible to you. 
maybe the hammer shows up super early in the game, but the Titan mitts don't show up until super late, but you're still able to follow a chain of progression to get to them eventually if you need them. Okay. That's interesting. The cool thing, yeah, so you have to know the map super well and Mm -hmm. you can sequence break if you know certain glitches, but those are not expected. So you can, you have to kind of run around and explore and figure out where am I locked out of? Where do I have access to right now? What's my highest percentage play in getting items? And then as soon as you start getting things, it's, okay, what is the game trying to clue me in on to where I should go? Because I'm getting this and this, but I haven't seen that or that. Is it saying, hey, I'm probably headed toward this dungeon? Because the things you need to beat the game, the the seven crystals from the Dark World, they're actually scattered in all sorts of different dungeons, including some in the Light World. So even the bosses that you need to beat are randomized. You don't have to beat every boss in the game. So it's like, okay, where am I going? What do I need? Etc. It's a really interesting hack. And I mentioned this on a role-playing game podcast first. First, because I think it's very cool and it's really fun to watch. And this video that I'll link from the AG to Q 2018 run is super cool because it's these two guys who take wildly different routes and end up like one screen apart from each other at one point. Wow. An hour and a half in. I mention it because I think it's a really good example and something that game designers or amateur game designers, I think it's something they can learn from because it shows very clearly the idea of taking something that you know super well and turning it into a very different play experience that still captures some of the same essence, right? You're still playing The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past for the Super Nintendo. You know, hearing you describe it that way, it almost feels like the transition from 3.5 to 5e in D&D. I would say it's more like the transition from 3.5 to something like a um, fan hack or one of the multitude of Powered by the Apocalypse games where they take this basic framework and hack it into telling a different kind of story. Huh. Okay. I could see yeah. that too. It's yeah. it's a really interesting thing. First of all, I think it's just cool and I've been fascinated by it. I've been watching a ton of videos and a ton of races. But also, the thing it kind of told me as somebody interested in role-playing games and systems is it's okay to take something that already exists and turn it into your own thing. Yeah. That's how we wound up with the gulls, wasn't it? <laughs> well, no, that was me going what what is awful? At the ocean. <laughs> Those are birds. That's, that's the answer, Grant. Everything is awful at the ocean. That's almost not entirely true. Um, <laughs> Seagulls are hey, terrible, on, terrible creatures, though. I, I've never actually seen an ocean, and I want to do so before I die. So. Blue herons are generally fine. Mm-hmm. Seagulls, though. They're awful. Seagulls are the worst, yeah. <laughs> and the, the next part of that train of thought was, huh, those are birds. We have bird humanoids. Kinku, the party likes those. Man, what if I did a little bait and switch? Like, oh, look, it's white Kinku. Ha, no, it's seagulls. <laughs> and they're charging at you. What horde of angry, bloody, screaming seagull people. Uh, uh. It was fun. Anyway. By the way, I, if you look at the blog post, yes, there are stats for them. <laughs> those of you familiar with D&D 5th edition will note that I literally just swapped out a couple of keywords on some pre-existing NPCs in the monster manual. Don't get too excited. These are not <laughs> like wildly different monsters. Anyway, I have spent too long on this randomizer thing, but I, I wanted to A, talk about it because it's neat, and B, suggest that I think one of the things amateur game designers or people interested in game design fall into, like as a trap, is the idea that their thing has to be completely new. Or that they can't stretch a system beyond what the author said it should be. I think those are two separate traps that are pretty common. 
this game can't do what I want because it's not really made for that. You can hack it and add all sorts of things and extend it and use that as a starting point and stretch it further than the system ever really expected. And as long as you're paying attention to balance, you can turn it into its own thing. And maybe it doesn't end up in any way identifiable as what it started as, but that's okay. It's okay for you to just kind of start from one place and keep pushing and pushing and pushing until you get it where you want it to go. Yeah, you can use your game as raw materials rather than a finished object. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's fine. Anyway, I've spent way too long on this. I'll, I'll, like I said, I'll link that run, and you should watch the rest of the AGQ games if you're at all interested in seeing people absolutely destroy games you love. <laughs> anyway, we should do a Patreon question. We should. And quick note, as I get this ready, if you are interested in getting your question read on air, send us a question if you are already supporting us on Patreon. And if you're not, you can do so at patreon.com slash saving the game. It only needs a, a dollar a month. That's the minimum to get your name and questions on our big list of questions, which I'm rolling on right now. Ah, fantastic. So this is from Francisco uh, with the Retro Rewind podcast, and it is super simple. Everybody ready? Yeah. Roller coaster or 4D immersive movie ride? Roller coaster. I love the feeling of speed and the wind going past my hair as I go down those steep slopes. Oh, boy. Both would absolutely give me a headache and nausea. I I actually had a very bad roller coaster experience as a child. Uh, So I think I'm going to go 4D immersive movie ride. Yep, and I'm going to kind of split the difference. Uh, I like roller coasters, but I really hate going upside down. Like, loops on roller coasters really bother me for some reason. Mm. If it's a kind of, like, elementary school roller coaster where it's like, you know, it's up and down, and even <laughs> steep is fine, high is fine, upside down bugs me. So given that, I'm probably going to do the 4D immersive movie ride, but I don't think I've ever been on one. So maybe I'd just say that because I'd like to try one. Yeah, I don't think I've ever actually been on one either, but I do like coasters. However, I will say this, since you brought up stuff that you don't like in rides, you know, like those giant swing rides, usually it's a boat or something Yeah, Yeah. that just swing back and forth. I get excruciating pain in my solar plexus from those if I try and ride them now as an adult. Interesting. Something in my insides just will not tolerate those. Yeah, those trigger the same, like, I'm upside down and this is terrifying reaction for me. For me, I'm totally fine with that. I, I am hmm. totally and absolutely fine with that. It's just that for me, roller coasters, the, the one roller coaster I've ever been on was sort of like you're sort of hung. You're not sitting. You're you're hanging from like this this oh. cage, basically. Yeah. And I was at a height and I honestly I haven't grown in, you know, over a decade. So I'm probably still the same height. But there were rungs that you could put your feet on to stabilize yourself. And the rung that was technically supposed to support my height, I couldn't get there because if I tried to bend my knees, they'd run into a different bar. So I couldn't reach the shortest bar, but the next lowest bar was too far away. So my legs were basically just being hit against these bars constantly as I was zooming around and around. It wasn't the upside down thing. It was just, it hurt my legs a lot and I don't want to do it again. (laughs) There (laughs) used to be this standing roller coaster at Six Flags near me that was called the Iron Wolf. I and it was a cool concept, right? You, you you stand up and you go through the roller coaster ride and stuff. The problem mm-hmm. is the, the restraints on it basically just meant that your head got drummed back and forth between these two steel surfaces oh. the entire time. Oh, you would no. come off with your ears this horrible crimson color because you oh, basically no. just got punched in the ear for four yeah, I was, minutes. I was, was going to say, terrible. it just boxes your ears over and over yeah, again. Yeah, the, the, the thing no. is, like, the track was all rough and shaky and stuff, too. Oh. And it was, oh, it was horrible. Yeah. 
I was Yikes. ready to give up my secrets by the time I got off this coaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of fun because I live, for those who don't know, Greenville, South Carolina, is, it's on I-85 right in between Charlotte, North Carolina and Atlanta, Georgia. So I, I'm kind of right in between two big cities. And near near those, we have a Six Flags and a Carowinds. I'll be honest, I don't remember which one's near what. I haven't gone in a long time. Last time I went was a church group and like senior highs. So, oh, yeah. wow. There you go. They are very cool. But the the roller coaster I actually remember most fondly was at a small amusement park, like one of those little mountain things. You, you guys probably don't know about these, but you know, there's just like little places in the mountains uh, near me where you can kind of go. It's it's like a small discount Dollywood. <coughs> yeah. What is this topography you speak of? I was in Midwest, <laughs> fair, sir. Fair. I am basically I on a corn covered plate. <laughs> I, I do actually know what you're talking about. We've, we've got similar stuff um, around here. Okay, good. Uh, and this one's called Maggie Valley. And you take this tr- uh, tram up to it. It's it's cute. It's fun. But the cool thing about it is they have a roller coaster there. And what's neat about it is, you know how most roller coasters have that build up where you go up the big hill to start? Mm-hmm. Sure. This is on a mountainside. So they kick you off and you're already up up high. Oh, <laughs> Oh, nice. You leave the station and immediately go down and into a loop. Oh, wow. There's no hill. (laughs) And and it probably takes away from some of that anticipation that you get, you know, where you get all worked up. But I just like it because it's the only one I've ever seen like that, where you just get Mm -hmm. to go, and ah, okay, we're starting. (laughs) (laughs) And you sort of get to come down at the end as it hauls you back up at the very end and parks Mm -hmm. you where you can get off and the next group can get on. Um, So it's it's a cool cool little roller coaster. I like that. It's almost like an inverted roller coaster in a lot of ways. That's neat. In some ways. It's a different experience and it's kind of, it's cute. It's very twee. (laughs) Uh, So Francisco, thank you. Cool question. We got a lot more out of that than I expected. Good, Mm -hmm. Good stuff. We have some scripture to read. And then we need to get into our topic. Uh, Dibs on Acts. Uh, I'll take 2 Kings. Kick us off then. All right. Uh, This is 2 Kings 6, 15 through 17. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked around and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And we have Proverbs 25, verses 25 to 27. Like cold water to a weary soul is good news from a distant land. Like a muddied spring or a polluted well are the righteous who give way to the wicked. It is not good to eat too much honey, nor is it honorable to search out matters that are too deep. And Acts 23, verses 6 through 10. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. That is my favorite verse in all of Acts. It is my favorite Bible story probably ever. (laughs) 
<laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You mentioned last episode when we were talking about gaming Bible stories, you, you picked Paul's escapes. Yeah, it's just it's such a massive troll is the thing. Like, and I don't <laughs> use that is. word lightly. It's just like he, he looks at one side. He looks at the other. He's like, I know exactly what I can do here and I'm going to make <laughs> <Yep>. it funny. <laughs> And the camera pulls out and the mushroom cloud is visible <laughs> over the Sanhedrin. I like to think it's more the uh, cartoon dust cloud with like arms oh, and legs the, occasionally yeah, popping yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> there you go. Uh, so our topic tonight, as we said before, is positive metagaming. And to talk about this, I think we do need to talk a little bit about metagaming, what it is, and why it has this bad reputation in the gaming community. First of all, very simple definition of metagaming. It is using outside knowledge to influence your PCs or NPCs actions and decisions in game. It's decisions about the state of the game or looking at the game from an outside perspective rather than making decisions based purely on what is happening inside the game. Yeah, you can <laughs> you can look at this as making a decision as an audience member rather than as a cast character member. in the story. Right. Yeah. Or as a player rather than as a character. Uh, yeah. Both are valid. <laughs> yep. Metagaming is a term that has a bad reputation in the gaming community uh, to the point where the Wikipedia page on metagaming in a role playing game. And yes, of course, it's there. <laughs> <laughs> it's Wikipedia. It has an article on everything. Yeah. Well, it's the English Wikipedia, notably. Mm -hmm. Did you know the uh, the Germans keep a much tighter rein on what goes in Wikipedia? Huh. I did not. I, I read a fascinating article. I don't know if I could ever find it again, but it was talking about the differences between the fact that basically Wikipedia for English speakers is just, did somebody think of it and put it in a, a wiki article? <laughs> yeah, it's in there. Fine. <laughs> Compared to Germany, which keeps like this very tight rein on what's allowed. And if it's not notable in, in like a real serious sense, it is kicked out and absolutely not. No, nine. <laughs> very have, different. Have you seen the, Gee, the list? Gee, that's not at all like Germany. Have you seen the um, list of Wikipedia articles that have been removed or list of Wikipedia lists that have been removed? I, I saw that it existed. It's very uh, funny. Again, I found, it, knowledge, I, like, I found a dramatic reading of it. It's very funny. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds great. I'll have to look that up after we record this. Absolutely. Um, anyway, the Wikipedia page on metagaming in a role playing game context is very down on it. It's like, oh, no, this is a terrible thing and you should never do it. Not exactly that, but the tone is very much, I am an old school, school gamer and metagaming is not allowed because it is bad for the game, sir. <laughs> or, well, Malay probably, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But we do need to talk about why it has that bad reputation because there are some ways to metagame badly. Let's be clear about that. We're talking about the good stuff, but let's not pretend that every use of metagame knowledge is good. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bad metagaming breaks story immersion. And this is, I think, what most people complain about. It strains or shatters the internal consistency of the narrative and sometimes just steals enjoyment from other players. If we're doing a role-playing game and suddenly my character goes, we're in this room, cool. Uh, I run to the altar and open the secret door and take out the gold pieces that are hidden there. I haven't even read the room description yet. Oh, yeah. Well, I read the module a while back and I remember this room. That's not yeah. fun. Yeah. Right? No. It ruins the experience for, for other players, breaks the consistency of the narrative. Mm -hmm. I'm playing the dwarven fighter. I don't get to notice things. Okay. <laughs> what am I doing opening a secret door? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm stealing something from the party rogue who's going, but secret doors are my thing. Mm -hmm. That's no fun. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's a that's bad metagaming. Also, you don't know if the GM changed something. Like, you just don't yeah. know. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And honestly, if I was the GM in that scenario, which I never would be because I don't run published adventures, but if I was, it'd be like, oh, yeah, the funny thing. The uh, the treasure in that secret door that you just somehow magically knew where it was, that's been replaced by a hive of angry wasps. Mm-hmm. So... Funny, I went to wasps as well. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, I must remind the audience that Peter and I are basically the same person. <laughs> in a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah. That's bad metagaming. Yeah. And let's not pretend that it hasn't happened, that it doesn't still happen, and that it doesn't it's, suck. It, yeah, it's awful. <laughs> yeah. Okay, come on. When you view tabletop role-playing games as a game you're trying to win, metagaming often comes up and is done badly. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's accidental where it's like, oh, yeah, I didn't realize that was out of character knowledge. Sorry, that happens. But when you're doing it purposefully, it's just no fun. No. Now, as we're going to talk about, too, you can also use it in other less pleasant ways. Yeah. I've I've actually seen it used specifically to antagonize a GM. Fun. Ugh. This was this was in high school, but it, it was I am annoyed at you, therefore I'm going to metagame your game. And it was Yeah. Yeah, I, I've I've seen it used like that multiple times. And it's just not cool to use a tool that way. Because metagaming no. is a tool and you can use a tool correctly or you can use it in a way to hurt people. Yeah, you can use a tool as a weapon. <laughs> yep. Exactly. So it's understandable that people who have perhaps only been exposed to that may view metagaming as a bad thing. Or people have been told metagaming is bad without really taking it any deeper than that. Yeah, n- no nuance or context or anything right. like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. or there are GMs or role-playing game books that say metagaming is bad because that's easier than explaining the difference and trying to cut off the bad without really encouraging the good. And there are plenty of very good ways to use a metagame perspective and metagame knowledge to improve your game. And that's what we're going to talk about here. Yeah. So <laughs> let's start with some convenience examples here. Well, okay. Hang on. Before we do that, let's try and define positive metagaming as opposed to yeah, negative you're right. metagaming. At a very high level, positive metagaming is paying attention to narrative structure and consistency to make for a smoother narrative and gameplay experience and or intentionally using out of game knowledge to make the game a better experience for the participants. So if I'm taking out of game knowledge and being like, you know, if I act on this in this way, this will make a more fun experience for everybody at the table. I'm metagaming, but I'm doing it with good intentions and a positive way that's going to have a good outcome for the gaming session. Sure. (laughs) And you know what? I'm going to start with a simple example from the last D&D session we played, Peter. All right. You guys were gearing up to start some sort of encounter. Yep. Okay, cool. Well, it was late. We were all tired. Yep. And we didn't want the game to go much longer. I certainly didn't want to start a combat. So I just sort of slowly stretched things out just a little bit, knowing that time was running out, and set up a cliffhanger that Chrissy, my wife, whose character was mostly involved in the action at that point because she was scouting ahead and murdering gnolls in their sleep. Story for another time. (laughs) You know, she was kind of playing along with that so that I could end it on a cliffhanger with something's about to appear on the creepy altar. And then we could call it there and pick up whatever's going to happen next time, next session, without stretching it out for another hour as we do combat or whatever. You know, actually, as we're saying this, I want to give some credit where credit is due, because Chrissy is the mistress of positive metagaming. She does very well. She she does it on an almost instinctive level. 
And she's probably she and her actions are probably going to come up at least once or twice more in this episode. And that's that's not by design or anything. She just does it. Oh, no. So it is by design. She's well, told me. No, about no. It I she mean, is very that's good not by at design it. from our outlining. It's just yeah. that she does it so consistently that she's going to be a convenient example. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, she does it very well. There's yeah. a reason I, I'm always complimenting her at the end of the game. It's like, yeah. She's really good at this. But that's the thing. She's keeping a close eye on how the game is going and making sure it stays fun. In many ways, she does a better job of that as a player than I do as a GM because I'm focusing on other things. Yeah, we all kind of play off of each other, but she knows you better than the rest of us. And she can kind of take advantage of those opportunities for it. Does very well. So Mm -hmm. we do have some other examples. First, uh, you can use it to facilitate productive play. If you've got one of these, like, you know, the party splits up and all goes off to investigate things and everybody has kind of done their thing, instead of spending several hours where you, you know, make dice rolls to find each other or something, you can all just kind of look at each other across the table and be like, I feel like my character would start heading back to headquarters because there is nothing interesting left for me to do. What about you all? And then... Everybody's like, yeah, and then the party's back together and you can get on to the actual story rather than playing out a bunch of, you know, bumbling around food markets and stuff trying to find each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Second that's of all, you metagaming. Can, yep, that's metagaming. Second of all, you can use it sometimes unintentionally to create extra drama or emotional punch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, this, this came up in the session with the seagulls. So I mentioned this in the blog post, so I'm going to be brief about it here, but Chrissy's character, Aster, has always been very big on self-preservation, you know, her own safety. She's a rogue. She's sneaky. She stays kind of out of the fray and fights, that sort of thing. She tried to throw herself in front of a spear for my character, who was in a bad way, in the middle of one of the fights in that session, which Grant ultimately ruled just that the mechanics didn't work that way. (laughs) But I, the player, knew that she had wanted to do that. And that added to the drama of the scene, whether it was actually possible in the rules or not. Mm-hmm. That's also metagaming. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've seen it where um, th- this was a while ago, so I may be misremembering this story. But knowing mechanically that your character cannot die in the next however many rounds or, or like your character can't, but another character can. So using hit point numbers to be like, OK, we should give up now and working that into role play, R-O-L-E playing rather than R-O-L-L playing. Right. Again, you're not trying to break the narrative consistency where you go, hold on, I know he's real low on hit points, so let's all drop our weapons. It's Phytor, the fighter. He sees that his uh, wizard buddy is hurt and looking around says, guys, I don't think we can win this. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. We, we've turned it into an in-character thing. Yeah. Great. Yeah. But that's metagame knowledge in your player's head. Yeah. Yeah. And I have, I have heard of groups where the GM will not allow the players to look at their own hit points and will simply tell them how bad they're looking, which I think is a little bit messed up because it it means that the GM is not trusting his players not to use metagame knowledge in a productive way. Yeah. In that scenario you're describing, absolutely. Now, there are Mm -hmm. games like Unknown Armies where the GM is supposed to keep that information, but that's because it helps crank up the tension. Yeah. yeah. The GM is supposed to hide the hit point information and keep track of that for everyone and just be very descriptive about injury. But A, it's yeah. a much more lethal system. Yeah. Where it's like if somebody pulls a gun, oh, things have gotten very serious and somebody may die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And B, it's a horror game. <laughs> it's supposed yeah. to be yeah. scary. And it's it's a much more narratively based game as well. 
Um, right. D&D was made for the mechanics. Uh, World of Darkness was made for the stories. Right. If somebody's going, well, I don't allow you know, my players to, to know their hit points in my dungeon crawl because they make smart decisions and tell stories based on that. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. Really? Although I will say for everything there is a season, that Ravenloft game that I've referenced a few times, mm -hmm. we never even got to see our character sheets. Oh my goodness. I don't think I could do that. <laughs> yeah, the GM had a character sheet for everybody and we just did everything through like pure role playing. And if, you know, something had to be rolled for, he rolled behind a screen and told us what happened. Oh, wow. But and that's we how all... you ended up playing Lord Soth. So, yes, exactly. <laughs> that, that, and that was that was necessary because he wanted to keep that information as a reveal for us later and some other things, too. And we trusted the guy. We all bought into it at the beginning. It was part of the social contract for that game. Yeah. And I think we have just very clearly described the difference between the problematic kind of metagaming that makes people suggest that metagaming is a terrible thing and good metagaming that turns it into a good narrative. Yeah. Uh, you can use it to set the GM or other players really up for cool moments or just make the experience less thorny. There have been a few times where I have directly addressed the GM and said, hey, would it be more interesting if I did X or Y? Yeah. You know, the, the answer is sometimes is I don't care. Just pick one. <laughs> Please and that's move a, the plot along. Yeah. And <laughs> that is a, that is a valid response. Island. Yeah. <laughs> Please, guys, would you just make landfall? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, if you have moments where it's like, hey, folks, after years of playing under this GM, I really feel like they would have prepped whatever. Let's go check that out. Mm -hmm. And, and know, to so be clear, that is not I feel like the GM would have prepared these traps and I know how to avoid them. That is, hey, I bet the GM has prepared a story like this. Let's go to where the plot is most likely to be. Yeah. That that exact specific thing. Yes, mm -hmm. I do this for plot reason. <laughs> yeah, it's like. Hey, I feel like if we go this way, there will be a story. And if we go that way, the GM will be like, um, there's yeah. trackless wilderness over there. I can try yeah. and come up with something, but I've had to I'm do this a lot. Very sad. I've had to do this a lot in con games, especially with with newer players at the table. And I'm like mm -hmm. the only one with many years of experience. I have frequently had to play the I'm doing this for the plot card. It is a very useful tool. It does help keep things moving. Yeah, and I have kind of a joke in here where it's like, you know what? I'm not going to grapple the enemy. Hitting them is just fine, because in just about every game system ever, the grapple rules are crazy. Oh, yeah. But yeah. I think um, if you're in a situation where time is running short or something, deliberately leaning on simpler mechanics that don't require as much time to resolve is a form of positive metagaming because yeah. it smooths the experience out. Mm -hmm. I've told you about the terrible D&D game that I played in for a little while. Oh, my, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. you know, where it's like, hey, I didn't have a stat under 60 as a cleric. My wisdom score was over 100 and none of it mattered. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of the other players in that group was playing a sorcerer who specialized in force spells. Basically, he threw lots of damaging spells around and it was lots of fun. Because the GM made us play out combat, even though none of the, none of the numbers ever mattered, and he was giving out all of these bonuses, it's like, oh, yeah, you get to roll like three times your normal dice. Well, you still have to do it. You know, it's like, it's super frustrating, right? Right. 
this guy eventually started just taking all the feats that maximized your spell damage on the dice. Okay. So that rather than having to roll dice, I'm rolling XD6 and it's always a six on those dice. So it's X times six plus my bonuses is my damage. Oh. It's just here's a quick math problem instead of let's roll, add it all up, apply bonuses, do all the, the slow, tedious process. It was calculator. Yeah, there's my damage. Go. Yeah, I've. Just I, nice. it, it's metagaming to make the best of a bad <laughs> yeah, situation. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say way to make the best of a bad situation. But that yeah. was that did happen. I, I remember when the psionics rules came out for 3.5. I love that That was book. basically our group in, in high school. It was. I love yeah. that book so much. <laughs> See, my favorite one was the one with the uh, pact magic in it, but. It's also I, fun. I yeah, I thought that was just kind of a neat system. Yeah. Anyway, this is one that I stuck in here, so I feel like I should address this one. It can be used to make life more pleasant for other players at the table. Um, if I'm the GM and I'm running a game, and I find out from the pre-game chat that one of my players has been up for the past three nights with a sick child that's been throwing up, their boss screamed at them at work, and they're battling a head cold, you know what? I'm going to go easy on that player during the game. I don't oh, need to it's, add to their misery. It's <laughs> as if you game with a bunch of parents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's as if I just took a bunch of non-hypothetical examples and stapled them together for this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah. true. And I think you can do that as a player, too, right? If yeah. it's like, yeah. hey, this person is having a crap week, I can, as a player, push them a little bit gently into the spotlight and give up some of my spotlight time. Maybe do things to yeah. help their actions instead of trying to do my own thing. Or, Let them feel awesome. Or, and that's yeah. fine. Or conversely, if if you know that they don't have the energy, like they are here because yeah. it is that time of the week, but they are not mentally there. Oh yeah. You you can you can pick up what they're they're dropping a little bit. So you, yeah, you can sure. sort of not not exactly pick up the slack because it's not like they're slacking, like they're trying very hard to be there. But No, but you can cover for them like you would a sick coworker. Yeah. Right. And the important thing is, this isn't changing the narrative, this isn't breaking the narrative, you're just choosing things that fit the narrative just fine, but are a little easier or a little more engaging for the player as necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of in a similar vein, if there's something that makes a person at the table uncomfortable, you can metagame to content gate. I mean, lines and veils are formalized metagaming. Yep. Yeah, so is the X card. Yeah. This is not in our game because it makes us as a playgroup uncomfortable or one person at our playgroup uncomfortable, which then ruins the experience for the whole group. Great. That's not going to come up in our story. We have shaped the narrative based on real needs of the people present at the table. Mm -hmm. Guess what? You metagamed and it's good. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and this is one of those things where once you really get to know your group, you can start avoiding stuff that you have a pretty good sense would be upsetting to somebody, even if they didn't call it out beforehand. Mm -hmm. And that's still metagaming. <laughs> Lines yeah. and veils rarely change from game to game. Yeah. But if somebody has gone through something like, I'll throw myself under the bus here, back when I tilted at Fear the Con because of, you know, cat-related violence after just losing our cat, mm -hmm. if other people at the table had somehow been able to know about that and had spared it, cat-related violence because of that, that would have been very nice, positive metagaming. Yeah. Yeah. We had a conversation about this after our own Pugmire game, where we changed what went into the game based on one player's negative reaction to dogs and cats committing D&D &D violence against each other. 
It's like, okay, cool. We're going to change the narrative to fit that. And Mm -hmm. we kind of made a little bit of an abrupt transition where it was just like, okay, we're going to just change it going forward. But we did sort of work some of that. It's like, hey, you know, there was some violence and it wasn't pretty and we've now got consequences for it. We worked that into the narrative so that it wasn't just Lathe of Heaven style universe shift, you know, (laughs) and that is positive metagaming. I I would say that metagaming is inherent to certain types of roleplay and necessary for certain types of roleplay because like any sensible person is going to look at a dragon or a gigantic robot that's shooting lasers out its eyes and they're going to start running away as fast as their legs can carry them because they can't take that on. But as players, we know that the GM is on our side. Hopefully. I I hope the GM is on our side. And so we can make those heroic choices because we know we can take it on. Yeah. Yeah. How many times have you had the, frankly, rather unpleasant person to game with who, as soon as the plot is presented, goes, oh, a danger? I run away and hide and refuse to participate. I've had it happen a couple of times. Yeah, that's realistic, but it's dumb. Yeah. It's not an engaging story, and it's not Mm -hmm. the story that's being told. And the metagame here is we are telling a story like this about these kinds of people. Mm -hmm. Let's all participate and let's all play into that narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's fine. And, you know, there's a space for perfectly ordinary people who somehow get caught up in things outside their control. There are stories like that, and that's fine. But if that's not the story everyone else is telling, you're going to be out of place. And it's your job to play into that. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, that's metagaming, but that's also OK. Yeah. yeah. As dumb as it is, the we meet at a tavern and immediately know we're all adventurers and can go on a quest together is metagaming and it's fine. Mm-hmm. Because you're all saying, let's go have fun dungeon crawly adventures instead of let's all sit here and stare curiously and perhaps a little suspiciously at each other and make sure nothing fun happens in this tavern. No yeah. fun allowed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, go have fun. Yeah, yeah I, I do have to say, like, a lot of the time, unless you make it a major focus of, like, your setup, getting a player character group together is going to be somewhat contrived. So mm-hmm. just bite the bullet and do it, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. Not- all of the really good stuff comes up later. We can't always have the perfectly crafted group template. There, There's not yeah. always going to be time for that, um, yeah. especially in a convention setting. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Either it's done for you. Uh, either it's done for you or you're playing fiasco. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, or you're doing, you're, if you have like a lot of time, there are, you know, systems and techniques like, again, Unknown Armies has a whole system of building a group template that's like the first part of character creation. Mm-hmm. But that also takes like a game session to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Traveler. Oh, Freaking yes. Traveler has its own game for character creation. Yeah. You know, um, the one that's more fun than Traveler. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, that was perhaps unfair. I've not played Traveler, but character yeah. creation's too much fun. What can I say? Yeah. Yeah. Those, any of those games, uh, Burning Wheels like that too, any of those games with the life path character creation are really interesting. Oh, mm-hmm. they're fun. But Jenny's absolutely right. Sometimes you can't do it and it's just, look, y'all are PCs doing PC things. Let's go. The plot's this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just roll with it in that case. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of value in a well-crafted group template. Oh, yeah. Like that's That's cool. But often, remember, creating a group template is itself metagaming, right? Mm -hmm. That is a very good form of metagaming where you say, let's all sit down together and come up with the characters that fit the scenario or a scenario that I can then fit a character into rather than some sort of, quote unquote, 
pure gaming experience where I make a character at home in complete isolation, bring it to the table, and we somehow magically fit everything together. (laughs) No, come on. One of the other things that I think is okay to kind of accept on a metagame level, if you know you have some kind of party dynamic that just facilitates a lot of really good role-playing with your particular group, there is no reason not to just shoot straight for that. Mm Mm-hmm. In the group that Grant and I are in, we discovered years back that we seem to have the most fun when our player characters are as good of friends as the players themselves are. So now we just do that. (laughs) (laughs) That's metagaming, but it makes for a really nice experience. Mm -hmm. I would say that in the D&D game, our characters or your characters did not start off that way, but very quickly ended up that way. Yeah. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. As long as you know going into it, you're going to end up there. And again, I made sure that you guys got to get into the first encounter together, worse than sent out together by the colony governor to do a thing. And it's like, there's a couple outside forces making you stick together, but after a little while, it's just like, no, they're a thing now. It's cool. Yeah, we're just the group that that goes and does stuff. Yeah. I think this is a, a really good case of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you find a thing and it works, you roll with it because it will just make your whole gaming experience a lot smoother, a lot easier, and a lot less strenuous on everybody. Again, we we keep talking about this. The people at the table are more important than the characters sitting on the table. Yep. It's fantastic to have a strong narrative that is perfectly organic and everything comes out of the game with no outside considerations. That's really cool. And sometimes when that happens, it's magic. Mm -hmm. But first of all, you're never completely excluding the player from the character. And second, those magic moments stand out because they are the culmination of lots of hard work and cooperation from everyone at the table. Mm -hmm. And that cooperation is metagaming. You're all working together to have a pleasant and enjoyable play experience. Yep. To, to take care of each other, to care for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, or at least brothers and sisters in the D&D party. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and I, I think kind of along those same lines, an acknowledgement of what the tone of the game is supposed to be and sticking with that, doing actions that are appropriate to that tone and that sort of thing is really important. If you're in a horror game, don't do silly, ridiculous, random things. If you're Mm -hmm. in a comedy game, do the silly, ridiculous, random (laughs) things and then think of more. Yeah. Or, you know, know when the silliness is appropriate, because sometimes you need that to have that relief. Yeah. Yeah. A big part of horror is the relief from horror and then it comes back and and so on and so forth. But pay attention to pacing and don't try and screw up an otherwise tense moment with a joke. Don't pull the rug out from everyone and be like, oh, hey, I ruined the scene. Yeah. But even (laughs) even more than that, if you have a little bit of talent and and know the tropes of something, like let's say you're playing in a noir game. If you deliberately go to noir tropes or speak in kind of that noir-y fashion, that is metagaming, Mm -hmm. but it enhances the experience because you are taking outside game knowledge of whatever the tropes, conventions, and aesthetics of the particular genre that you're playing in and deliberately applying them to the play experience whether your player character would know to do that or not. Mm-hmm. And I think on that, I'm just about done here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think so, too. I, I, I think, I think so that's too. a good point to wrap up. So yeah. if you've got other good examples, of course, we want to hear them. Send us feedback through social media. 
comments on the blog post, so on and so forth. If you're not familiar with it, by the way, we have a great Discord channel that you can find on our website to continue this conversation there as well. Usually after every episode drops, there is some conversation about it, and that's that's fun to get into. So hop yeah. in there. Yeah, it's it's small but active. It's a small but active group. It is. And, and what's cool is we're talking about a lot of different stuff. Mm -hmm. Good group of people. And of course, if you've got anything else you want to reach out to us about, hit us up on social media as well. In particular, if you like this episode, please share it around. Let people know about it. Mm -hmm. It helps us a ton. Yep. And on that note, I think we're going to wrap this up unless either of you have anything. No, no. I'm good. I, yeah, I'm done. Awesome. Then from all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you later, folks. See ya. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.